I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. Africa O'Connell is with me and you're reading a happy book this week. Oh, so exciting. I am reading a book at the moment in which every single person on earth spends their entire life in a queue. And we'll find out more about that later. But first... With the Oscars imminent, there is one clear short price favourite in the main categories. Nomadland was adapted from the 2017 book of the same name, written by journalist Jessica Bruder. Bruder took to the roads of the United States, learning the stories of a very modern breed of American nomad. In the book, she details the travails of largely older Americans who, cast adrift by the last recession and unable to pay their mortgages, have taken to a transient lifestyle in search of seasonal work. They live in their RVs or camper vans and travel from the beet fields of North Dakota to Amazon's Camper Force program in Texas. Employers have discovered a new low-cost labour pool and Nomadland has very strong echoes of the Dust Bowl America of the 1930s. Jessica Bruder, welcome to the book show. You've said that writing non-fiction is weird, that when you're done, the plot keeps going without you. That's kind of exceptionally true about a book like this, though, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Not only did the story follow me home, but the story kept going in different media. And, and now we see the story in film. I mean, this really started as a pitch to a magazine, moved to a magazine story, to a book, and now to the movie. And uh, the story continues today. So absolutely. What drew you to this story and to these people in the first place? I'm fascinated with subcultures, what the writer Armistead Maupin referred to as logical rather than biological families. I also encountered the work camper community. Now, as somebody who used to see RVers and always assumed that they were people on permanent vacation, you know, the last of the great pensioners, when I learned that there were people on the road who uh, were living on the road full time and couldn't afford a traditional retirement and were taking uh, jobs all over the country, including these Amazon jobs, jobs at the sugar beet harvest, jobs at amusement parks. This was a whole underground, a whole economic underground that I hadn't been aware of. And I wanted to know more. Who were these people? What were their stories? And that's really where I began. The people in Nomadland, in your book, they've been devastated by the last Great Depression of 2008. And for most of these people, they take to the road in search of work. There's a parallel here, and it's quite an obvious one. Did you ever feel the shadow of Steinbeck just slightly over your shoulder? Oh, yeah. And who doesn't want that on the shoulder? I wouldn't even call it a shadow. Uh, you know, be a beam of sunlight in many ways, even though it's not a sunshiny topic. Uh, yeah, I definitely thought about Steinbeck. I tried to bring Steinbeck in in just a very small way when Linda May passes through Needles, California, and there are these pinnacles near a river, and it's this river where uh, I believe the Joads were part of a camp there briefly. So when you're traveling through these landscapes and realizing that, you know, a fictional story like that actually took place there, it's hard not to be hit over the head with the resonance. One of the romantic ideas that we have about the Great Depression of the 1930s is of the rudimentary signs and the graffiti that was used by people at the time indicating that there were places that were welcoming to them or places that weren't. It, it's kind of transmuted into a brand new language today, though, hasn't it? Maybe tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible how much knowledge people pool online in similar ways. There was an app I used called All Stays, And I remember if I was looking for a Walmart and I wanted to stay in the parking lot, for example, people who were in the same situation would have gone to the listing for that Walmart and said, no, you can't use this Walmart, local laws prevent it, or 
You can, but talk to the night manager and make sure you park in the northwest corner so you're not in the way of the 18-wheelers that come in with deliveries at six in the morning. So you have all these little narratives floating out there and people leaving signs for the people who come after. And that kind of communal spirit, even among strangers, I thought was pretty fantastic. You went inside Amazon. Maybe tell us just a little bit about that and specifically about their Camper Force program. Yeah, so they have a program and it began in 2008, not long after the housing crash. In a lot of areas around the country, Amazon used to put warehouses in places where there wasn't a big customer base. Uh, It was a way of skirting uh, sales tax. Uh, It's called a tax nexus to do that. But the problem is you can't always get the labor there that you need. So when they realized this labor pool was available and could come in from elsewhere and show up with their own houses, uh, that's how it became a pilot program. And then it became a program with its own logo. It's like an RV or no, it's like, yeah, it's an RV with the Amazon smile. It became branded like so many things do. And gosh, it's huge now. I, I looked at the map. I think there were definitely under 10 locations when I last looked at it. Um, when I was still doing book stuff, maybe even around four. And now I think it was at least in the 20s for the coming season. So it's grown tremendously. A lot of the people that you you talk to in the book and who we see in the film, they're of an older age group. They're almost ironically held up as an example to younger workers for their work ethic and for never quitting their jobs. But they can't afford to quit. So there is a kind of perverse psychology at work there, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's just seeing people held up because of this can-do attitude, um, it, it's it's tough to see that because I want, you know, just as a human being, I'd, I'd love to see people advocate for themselves and think that uh, they deserve a positive work environment and to be treated in a humane way. And so, yeah, I mean, people do get held up in that, you know, positive way. You know, we, we love our positivity here in America. Uh, recently, a phrase was coined toxic positivity, which I think is pretty fantastic. I used to call it weaponized positivity. Age is a, a constant throughout the book. There comes a time for a lot of people where they have to come off the road or they end up dying on it. There are serious repercussions for their health. Yeah, well, I mean, in in this country, a lot of people, we don't ever say somebody died of poverty, right? But if somebody doesn't have access to what they need, whether it's medical care or shelter or even nutritious food, and then, you know, people are more likely to get sick if they don't have preventative medical care. Do you know what I mean? There are all sorts of factors. At the same time, I remember speaking with one of the van dwellers about this, and she told me, look, I'd rather die in a van than in some horrible nursing home where I'm just hopped up on so many meds that I can't even think and I'm not even myself anymore. Um, So it's complicated, right? But there are hard things. I remember Swanky was camped and uh, there was a gentleman nearby and family was supposedly coming to help him out. And they talked, they both are really good at painting and it compared their art. And she walked by one day and there were flies on the screens and the coroner had to come. The guy was gone and it was just horrible. And, you know, stuff like that can also happen. How hard was it ultimately to remove yourself from the lives of the people that you wrote about in the book? Um, Hard. And I also did a really bad job of it (laughs) because here we all still are. There's on the phone with Linda for an hour yesterday. I I think this has been a a set of really unusual circumstances and that first there was this long for magazine story. I mean, I'm I'm like a chronic malingerer in this community. Um, You know, then there was the book. People joked when I did the magazine story, they said, oh, I'll bet you'll be back here next year with a van. And I was thinking, well, that would be cool, but that's never going to happen. And then there I was with the van. (laughs) 
Uh, and now, you know, so many people are involved with uh, the many hands it takes to lift the story that is the film that we're all, you know, I, I would be in touch with a bunch of them anyway, but we're in touch more. So I'm really bad at walking away in this case. Uh, I'm working on it. Call me in a year. <laughs> Let's bring the story all the way around now to the film and to how well the film has been doing. The Oscars are almost on us. The film is odds on to win big. Is it strange for you to see these stories that you found being retold now as a narrative fiction? Um, strange. Well, it feels very real to me, this narrative fiction. It feels very familiar. I really do believe that they captured a lot of what it's like to be out there. So... There is a strangeness of having all these experiences right now in COVID times with quarantine and all that, but it's also still incredibly gratifying to see that these stories are connecting with people and now in a different format, continue to connect and really hold up through these translations and contortions. So, so seeing the story travel is exciting. In a way, we're all just vectors, whether it's me or Chloe, we're all just vectors for these stories. And it's gratifying to see them continue to move through the world. I have to ask you, do you have any plans for Oscar night? Um, I'm going to watch them. Um, I will be in LA, but not at the Oscars. So I will be watching them on the small screen and cheering my brains out, hopefully, right? That sounds like a great idea. Jessica Bruder, thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you, Rick. It's been great. Nomadland will premiere on Star on Disney Plus in Ireland on the 30th of April, which is available to all Disney Plus subscribers at no additional charge. And perhaps even more enticingly, it will be in cinemas when available. And the inspiration for the film Nomadland by Jessica Bruder is published by Swift Press. And from a very real current dystopia in the United States today, we're going to move now to some imagined ones of the past. Africa O'Connell is with me as a guide. Uh, dystopian fiction is having a resurgence, but let's be honest, it's never really gone out of fashion, has it? It's never gone out of fashion, but how on earth could it not have a resurgence at the moment in the times we're all living in? But yeah, in the past five years or so, in particular around uh, January 2017, they noticed a thousands and thousands percent increase in sales of things like Sinclair Lewis, It Can't Happen Here, The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, of course, and the thing that kind of kicked it off seemed to be Trump's inauguration in the United States. In the context of when <laughs> all of the great dystopian fictions are written is crucial, the point of time at which those books are written. Because, you know, science fiction, great science fiction is never about the future. Yeah. It's always about where it's been written. The context of when these books were written is absolutely crucial because when you look back, you will find all the best dystopian fiction is written in and around or slightly after huge destabilising events. So you see things like Prior to World War Two, you'll have you'll have Brave New World written, and you'll have Ayn Rand's Anthem, and then in the years just after World War Two, when Europe was you know being carved up, you have George Orwell's 1984, the Cold War years, and all the paranoia that came with that gave rise to The Lord of the Flies and Clockwork Orange, and then you get into the 1970s and 80s, and you're thinking about Reagan, the oil crisis, Falklands, Chernobyl. Coming out of that, you've got the the Running Man, you've got the Stand, you've got for Vendetta people were not feeling secure they were not feeling stable and that's where all of these books come from I do think sometimes that graphic novels are left out of that you're absolutely right so the likes of V for Vendetta and Watchmen they're fantastic parables of 1980s uh, politics they're, they're well worth people's time 
Let's recommend some titles. We will stay in the 80s to begin with, probably with the most influential of them all, which is Handmaid's Tale. This is uh, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale is one of my favourite books of all time, let alone favourite dystopian books of all time. It was written in uh, the mid-1980s. It is about the consequences of a reversal of women's rights. It is so well written. There is a hugely successful now TV adaptation of it, which, you know, has been controversial in itself because people are are talking about, you know, is it torture porn? Is it this kind of thing? But these, if certainly in the first series of that TV adaptation, these are all things that happened in the book. They're all things that Atwood wrote about in the 1980s and they were all things that were happening to women all around the world at that time. It is one of the best books I've ever read. Let's talk Orwell as well because he casts a very, very, very long shadow with 1984 and rightly so. Yeah, absolutely. Also, another one of my um, favourite books, it's that dark streak. So it it follows Winston Smith. It was written in 1948. It follows Winston Smith who lives in a version of um, Britain that's been subsumed into Oceania. Winston is constantly under the watchful eye of Big Brother in an era of sort of smart speakers and constant surveillance. Um, it's prescient. It really speaks to the world that we're living in now. It's completely relevant and it's brilliant. I think if people like it uh, as much as uh, you and I do, you should check out Dorian Linsky's book from a couple of years ago, The Ministry of Truth. He wrote what he called a biography of 1984. So it deals with Orwell, his early career, him in the Spanish Civil War, then writing the book and being miserable and ill and cold on the island of Jura. Uh, and then everything that happens with 1984 after Orwell dies right the way up to the, to the present day. It's a cracking book. Um, the bleakest of them all mm-hmm. is probably Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yeah, it's a slightly more um, contemporary one, I guess. It is unbelievable. It won a Pulitzer Prize. It grabs you from the very first sentence. The story follows a man whose name you don't know and his son on a journey across post-apocalyptic America. It is um, sparse in McCarthy's style and it is it's one of the best contemporary examples I think of a dystopian novel and very much not for the faint hearted no I didn't think you were going to go for this one because I, I haven't read this despite the fact that I love the film and that's the novel version the original novel of Battle Royale yeah it's a cushion Takami it was published in Japanese first in 1999 and it wasn't translated into English until 2003 but that was three years after the film was made Battle Royale has a really good case to be one of the most influential dystopian books books um, of all time, of modern times, certainly. It's influenced the Hunger Games and by extension, it's influenced the massively popular video game Fortnite. It is set in a fictional authoritarian Japan where 50 high school children are kidnapped and sent to an island to fight to the death, basically. It's also not for the faint-hearted, but it's brilliant. And we're going to finish off, uh, as I think we should, with something Irish and something brand new as well, which is Neil Burke's Line. Yeah, this is only out the last two weeks or so. Um, it follows Willard, his mother and his girlfriend Nyla, who spent their entire lives waiting in line. Nobody knows for what, but daily survival is dictated by the imperative that you have to follow the rules. It's out at the moment and it is very interesting. I'm heartbroken that my all-time second favourite, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, doesn't even get a mention here. I'm so sorry, Ray. But I'm going to throw it in there anyway. (laughs) If you've never read Day of the Triffids, it's a thing of absolute beauty. Africa, Connell, thanks a million as usual. Thanks, Rick. (laughs) 
Now it's time once again for an author to meet their readers. Here's Sue Walsh to tell us all about the Bafflers Book Club in Cork City. Hello from Bafflers Book Club in Cork City. We are a group of about 10 friends who formed a book club in 2017. We also share theatre and film recommendations and our quirky name Bafflers is derived from the first letter of each of the names of the founding members. Prior to lockdown, we were meeting every six weeks or so and enjoying the culinary delights of our fantastic city. We take turns choosing books and have reviewed a wide range of genres by Irish and international authors. In 2019, we were delighted to be welcomed into local writer Conal Creedon's home. We had a great night of storytelling and learning more about his excellent book, Begotten Not Made. Then, more recently, another Cork writer, Madeleine Darcy Lane, kindly joined us via Zoom and we all shared our thoughts about her wonderful collection of short stories, Waiting for the Bullet. We have found it to be a joy, sometimes an education and often a healing, to get lost in a book. And now you know why they're called The Bafflers. The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne is this week's book choice. And here is Sue again to set the scene. Bafflers read The Heart's Invisible Furies together and felt that John Boyne succeeded in making these furies not just visible, but understandable. Strong themes of judgment and injustice permeate the novel, which begins in West Cork and follows pregnant 16-year-old Catherine Goggin to Dublin. The story then centres on her son, Cyril, after his adoption by a wealthy eccentric couple. John Boyne's writing finds humour in the most desperately sad situations and we were completely drawn in to Cyril's journey as he is gently tormented by the world and sometimes by his own judgment. His search for happiness is certainly relatable in the context of the wider story of Ireland. And John Boyne, you are very welcome to the book show. How are you getting on? I'm good, Rick. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, We're going to take the first question from the Bafflers Book Club for you now. This is from Lindsay Adams. John Boyne's Hearts Invisible Furies totally captivated me. Cyril Avery's journey through life as a gay man, born into an Ireland steeped in religious and social repression and finishing in an Ireland full of hope. How much did the legalisation of same-sex marriage in Ireland and the promise of a new open and inclusive society inspire this story? Well, thanks, Lindsay. Um, Yeah, it it inspired it quite a lot. Uh, When I started writing the book, um, it was in the year or so leading up to the same-sex or the equal rights marriage referendum. And it certainly seemed at the time um, uh, that it was going to be passed, as, as it ultimately was. And the thing that interested me really was trying to understand how Ireland had changed so much in a relatively short space of time. We were, of course, the first country in the world to actually vote by public plebiscite for equal rights marriage. But only, what, 22 years earlier, in 1993, that was when homosexuality was first decriminalised. And in historical terms, of course, 22 years is the blink of an eye. So I wanted to really kind of examine Ireland from the end of the war in 1945 up till just after that referendum to really try to understand for myself how the country had changed, why it had happened, what were the forces that led us from being quite a um, quite a dark country, I think, to grow up in as a gay man to one that, as you say, is open and inclusive. The second question from the Bafflers Book Club in Cork City. Uh, this time it comes from Aoife Spallan. My question for John Boyne is how much of an inspiration is John Irving's work on your rating? 
Well, thanks, Aoife. Quite a, a large uh, inspiration, really. Um, I started reading John Irving's novels when I was a teenager. I started with The Cider House Rules, uh, The World According to Garp, and he very quickly became my favourite contemporary writer, and he remains that to this day. And more than 20 years ago now, when I published my first novel, The Thief of Time, I sent him a copy of the book with a letter, a fan letter, effectively, telling him how much of an inspiration he had been on my work, I, on, my, on my reading, really, and my desire to be a writer. I love his kind of big novels of life, you know, starting from a baby's birth all the way through to old age, which is what I do in The Heart's Invisible Furies. Uh, I like the humour that he brings into his stories, the eccentricity and, um, and the emotion, the real, the real emotion that's there. And John very kindly wrote back to me and had read my book and we've become great friends in the 20 years since and he's become a real mentor. Uh, to me as well as a really good friend and we've shared stages uh, on a num number of occasions and when I came to write this book then I felt uh, I wanted to dedicate it to him. John was writing about uh, sexual issues and gender issues way before anybody else was. I mean in the 1970s when he wrote The World According to Garp he has a transgender character in that novel the football player Robert Muldoon who becomes Roberta Muldoon and this was you know this was so far before that was even a subject that was generally talked about at all so I you know he has influenced me quite a lot um he he is still my favorite writer and he's still one of the people who I send um a first edition of my books to Leona Duffy has our third question now from Cork City in the book many issues were resolved and behaviors explained eventually do you think this is an endeavour to maybe further the theory that there's a reason for everything and the way people behave? Thanks, Leona. Uh, yes, I, I suppose it is. One of the ways that uh, I write a novel is I don't really know what's going to happen, to be honest, when I'm starting it. I don't really know where I'm going to take it. So I start with an idea or a character or a theme and I just start writing and I see where, where it will go. And by the end of the book, certainly at the end of the first draft, characters have behaved in ways that I might not have expected at the start. You put them into scenes, you give them dialogue, you let them you know, bump up against other characters and you, you see what will happen. So with each draft of the book that a writer writes, um, you have to kind of uh, make it as authentic as possible. You have to find all those motivations that would lead to those characters behaving in the way they do. And in The Hearts of Visible Furies, um, I, I don't think this is a spoiler at all, but I kind of bring all the characters back at the end of the book, even the dead ones, um, in a strange way. And I try to give them all a sort of resolution. And hopefully, if I've done it right, by the end of the book, each character and all the things they do, whether they're positive things or negative things, will seem real to the reader, will seem authentic. That's the rarest of conversations here on The Book Show, where an author talks about the very ending of their own book and tells us what happens. Um, the final question for you, John, on The Heart's Invisible Furies. It comes from Fiona Chambers. At the centre of this powerful book is an ecological view of identity and belonging which traverses generations. A particular example is when Cyril is told that he's not a real Avery. How do Cyril's invisible furies fuel his quest to establish his own identity and sense of belonging? Uh, thank you, Fiona. Uh, yes, Cyril is told this quite a lot through the book by his adoptive parents. Charles and Maud Avery, and they keep reinforcing to him that he's not a real Avery. 
they don't actually do it to be cruel, uh, even though it sounds quite cruel. They are quite an eccentric uh, couple. And for the most part, they treat Cyril quite well. They, they feed him, they clothe him. And uh, they just don't really have an awful lot of love to give around. And Cyril, even as a small child, age seven, he's almost the real adult in the family. So he doesn't take great offence at being constantly told that he's not a real Avery. But somewhere subconsciously, I think, he needs to discover who he is and why he is. And he doesn't deliberately go on a search for his, his birth mother, but his life story seems to intertwine with hers quite a few times along the way. But it's really his own identity, his, his sexual identity, his place in Ireland, whether he belongs there or not, that's what's important to him. And twice in the novel, I take him out of Ireland for a substantial period of time, once to Amsterdam and once to New York. And it's only really by being away from Ireland that he realises that he does belong here and how much he loves it. And that no matter what society might be saying about him at that particular time, he still wants to be there. Thanks a million for answering those questions for us. John, just before you go, though, there is a new book and it's due out in August. Maybe tell us a little bit about the new one. Yeah, um, I have a novel called The Echo Chamber being published on the 5th of August and it's a comic novel. Um, I set myself one task when I started writing it, which was that I would have a laugh out loud line on every page. You know, there's a lot of comic novels that I find don't really make you laugh or smirk. Um, I tried to get as many jokes into it as possible. And I'm not really known, other than Hearts of Visible Furies, I'm not really known for comic novels. Um, but this is about social media and the negative effect that social media can have on our lives. And I, I kind of took the experience I had a few years ago with one of my young adult books. My brother's name is Jessica. And a certain amount of kind of online trolling that happened um, afterwards that was new to me. I, I, you know, I wasn't sure how to handle it at all. But I kind of took that experience as a writer does. And I've turned it into a comic novel featuring a family who, quite frankly, are all idiots <laughs> and just keep making terrible mistakes online. And that's out in August of uh, this August year. August yeah. John Boyne, thanks a million again for talking to us on The Book Show. Cheers. Thank you. The Heart's Invisible Furies is published by Doubleday and, as John said, his new novel, The Echo Chamber, will be out on the 5th of August. Thanks to John Boyne and to the Bafflers Book Club for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, drop us a line, bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1, the podcast available wherever you find yours. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop or library for any of the books featured on the programme.